0: There was a lot of youthful exuberance in the room as we were blessing the cart. (laughs) It's a good sign. The other day I went with two friends to Fairfield University to see this semester's temporary exhibit. It's a collection of sculptures by Auguste Rodin, the master artist who created The Gates of Hell. It's six meters tall, based on Dante's Divine Comedy but most people probably know him better for one figure represented in the gates of hell, and that is the thinker. Can you all call that image to mind? Would anyone be willing to pose as the thinker for me for a minute? You're already seated, right? Anyone? Yeah, there we go. So I went to be inspired to catch a glimpse of that greatness on display, and it really is powerful. Rodin was a prolific artist, and he would make his... Um, sculptures in clay and then make plaster casts of them and make bronzes out of them and he could create so many works with this um, with this uh, strategy. And many of his works are allegorical, they're full of rich symbolism and he was really a master at creating the human form and putting expression in it. So I was surprised to find that for me the most moving thing of all that I saw in that room was the description under a bust. Now the bust was done in the style of um, ancient Roman emperors and the face is very expressive and the the eyes of this gentleman are um, sort of piercing and the brow is furrowed as though he's looking at you in this um, very loving but worried sort of a way. And the words under the bust explained that this was done of Rodin's own father, who was born in 1803. The description said he was a conservative family man who worked hard his entire life, first as a clerk in a police station and then as a police inspector. He seems to have been a quiet, unremarkable person, the description reads, except in this one way. He supported his son's aspirations to be an artist, which was quite remarkable at that time. And he recognized his son's talent when no one else did. And they show this excerpt from a letter the father wrote to his son. He wrote, you must not construct your future on sand so that the smallest storm will bring it down. Build on a solid, durable foundation. So that the day will come when one can say of you, as of truly great men, the artist, Auguste Rodin, is dead, but he lives for posterity, for the future. This father was practically biblical when it came to his hopes for his son and the scale on which he dreamed his dreams for his child. And it's so powerful in that room the way it all came true. His work, his legacy, indeed lives on. So I left there wondering how much the father's hope and vision for his child had made it all come true, and how much the father had just named the potential that was already there. And I also left thinking that this is who God is, as creator and as loving parent. I picture God also maybe worried, brows a little furrowed, looking lovingly and intently at us, and also hoping, imagining, dreaming what can be for this world, which God, the Bible narrative tells us, has also sculpted out of words and clay. We sometimes think on too small a scale. We think about what we know can be possible based on what we've seen, and we forget to dream big dreams. We fall so easily into a trap of taking everything around us as final. Not so with God. The prophet Isaiah describes God dreaming the biggest dream of all for us and for all of creation. In chapter 65, Isaiah writes, For I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it, or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days, or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. Can you hear this? There's no one crying. There's nothing to cry about. There are no children who die. There are no old people who don't get to live their Full lives. It continues, for one who dies at a hundred years will be considered as a youth. And what this really means is that even as you age, there are no signs of aging. Considered as a youth means you have all of that vitality and that vigor that you had when you were a kid. He continues, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. What the prophet is describing is what happens when some conquering army comes through and displaces all the people, and they all are sent packing on their way, and someone else moves into their homes, and someone else eats all of the fruit from the vineyards that they have planted, and they are left homeless and destitute. For like the days of a tree shall my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. So for, in Isaiah's vision, this is everything. This is about the health, this is about safety and security, this is about economic Potential, that people can not labor in vain, that they're working for themselves, that they have a chance to be productive. And then this. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain," says the Lord. But for this line, I like the King James Version best, Thus saith the Lord. This vision is God's vision. This promise is God's promise. This passage is beautiful and poetic, full of imagery. We usually read it during Advent. Are you thinking right now, hang on a second, I didn't know Christmas was so soon? It's not. This is an Advent passage outside of Advent, and I have to say, I like it better here. When it's presented as an Advent prophecy, it seems as though Jesus is the answer to everything. When we hear the wolf eating with the lamb, we picture the cover of a beautiful but very quaint Hallmark card. A Christmas card picture. But to read it here in November, it sounds different. These former things that will not be remembered or come to mind, this is where we are today. Close, but not so close to Christmas that we can focus on all of those distractions that come along with the holidays. Not so close that we get off so easy, imagining that the whole answer to this prophecy is Jesus. And that we don't also have a role to play in what God is creating, this new heavens and this new earth. Do you feel bombarded by horrors from the 24-hour news cycle? Do you scroll past the news sometimes, maybe hurrying by the headlines? They just wash over you. Heaven help you if you click on something upsetting and it has a video that goes along with it. Just turn to the needs of God's beloved world, always printed in the bulletin, to help shape our prayers. But they also are just such a bleak reminder of all of the pain and suffering in the world. And does it all make you want to cry? Or give up? Or turn away, find some distraction? This passage is written as an answer to all of this suffering. It's here as hope. God's hope. Just as the father of the artist had that profound hope for his child. He could see what was possible. This is God's hope for us. So what can we do as people of faith in this broken world? What can we do with this, God's vision of a different reality? And what if today, with this passage, we don't just let Jesus be the answer? The Christian community lost one of our greatest ecological theologians just this past Friday, Dr. Sally McFaig. She spent most of her career at Vanderbilt Divinity School, teaching and writing over four decades, and she drastically changed the Christian conversation about the earth and all of the creatures in it. She reframed our understanding of what the creation and the creator, how how they have a relationship with one another. There are some Christians, I don't think in this room, but who read this Isaiah passage and think it lets us off the hook with all of creation care. Because there is, in fact, a planet B, right? God promises it, right here. I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. So, don't worry about everything that's happening with this one. Do you hear that? I don't. What she explains is that this vision... and this vision is unfolding. God is creating it now. This is God's ongoing work. Not a whole separate new heaven and earth, but working within this heavens and this earth. God is recreating a different way, and this is unfolding. So she says this is a call, an invitation. She says, we are all being called to do something unprecedented. And it begins with how we think. This is where she began. We are being called to think about everything that is, For we now know that everything is interrelated and the well-being of each is connected to the well-being of the whole. She says that we first need to affirm the value of all life. We need to begin where God begins in the first act of creation and saying to everything, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then in the totality, when God's created everything together, it is very, very good. So this, we're used to just saying it is good about our own tribe, about our own nation, about our own religion. But she says, as created beings, we need to expand this proclamation of it is very good, even outside of our own class and species. And she says we could be like the saints, in practicing a universal love that knows no bounds, a love that radiates out, becoming more and more inclusive. She asks, how far can it go? And she writes, how do we even begin to live differently when our world is increasingly ordered around the greed of the individual and the decay of nature? Why even imagine such pictures, such visions of a different world? And she finds her answer in our text for today, in Isaiah 65, reminding us that God has promised that before we call, God is going to answer. While we are still speaking, God will hear. This is the only reason, she says, we dare to imagine a different world, because God is already there imagining it for us. This world is not just a dream. It's the way things should be, and the way, with God's help, the way it can be. She says the degree to which we live in God, from God, and for God, this world will emerge. So, what if we, as the church, as the people of God, all of us as individuals, But collectively, as the body of Christ, what if we first imagine and then ask for that new heaven and that new earth? Can we start to imagine a place where the wolf will lie down with the lamb? What if first we have to accept that the lamb has value? And what if we first could imagine that we've been the wolf all along? that to make this happen, to live like the saints, we need to turn off some impulse to possess and devour everything around us, to take more than our share. Dr. McFaig loved Dorothy Day, and she talked about the way she lived her life, and how she didn't just go work at a soup kitchen and feed the poor, she went and lived with the poor. She shared their housing and their meals, and when somebody came hungry, She would say, of course, there's more for you. All of us will have a little less, but there will be enough. We aren't used to remembering when we sit down at a meal that the earth was created for there to be enough. We forget all of the abundance. We forget that maybe we have taken, in our just everyday living, the way everyone lives all around us, We might be taking more than our share, and that might be the reason there's so much suffering. So how, as the people of God, do we live into a different way? I see it all the time in this community. I see warm meals cooked out of this kitchen for hungry neighbors. I see the apartments set up for refugee families. There's the possibility of an offer of sanctuary for a woman, who's asked if maybe she could come into this church because she's facing deportation, and she will be indefinitely separated from her young children who are here. I know we will see it this afternoon when children come into Wakeman Hall and learn songs of peace from the 60s and 70s, when we hand on that vision of that time when things could be different, Through all of these ways, God's grace shines through our choices as a community. This is God's hope and God's promise. There is nothing so bleak, nothing so broken, nothing so beaten down in your own life or in this world that God isn't envisioning a way to form a new creation. And here is more of the good news. It sounds so complicated that we're all so intimately connected to one another that our decisions affect each other. But it's also, there's so much possibility there because wherever new life breaks in, wherever there's restored biodiversity in an ecosystem, wherever there's more economic justice for someone in our community, all of that new life, all of that healing and hope and transformation, that new life is also present for us. So grounding it all is the love of God The hope of God. God's passionate belief that this new creation is possible for us if we will live into it. Can you grasp that vision? Can you see it? And I close with more words from the prophet Isaiah. Surely, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. With joy, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. May it be so for us and for all of creation. Amen.